I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Crazy in Love is the true crime podcast that tells love stories with a twist. She is this beautiful homecoming queen. He is this young and up-and-coming doctor. I mean, they literally couldn't sound like a more perfect couple. Sometimes the twist of a knife. He certainly checked all the boxes of a psychopath. I mean, someone who was callous, not emotional, morally depraved, had a lot of charm, highly intelligent, extremely manipulative. Just because things start off with once upon a time doesn't mean everyone lives happily ever after. This is Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. I'm Courtney Armstrong, a crime producer at KT Studios, joined by fellow producers Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Beth Greenwald, and Chris Graves. We're exploring the story of the homecoming queen, the husband, and his deadly midlife crisis. Michelle was 21 years old when she met Martin McNeil in 1978 at an event for young Mormon singles. Despite Michelle's concerned family, she fell for Martin quickly and the pair eloped. Eventually, Martin and Michelle moved to Pleasant Grove, Utah, 35 miles south of Salt Lake City. They were considered pillars of the community. Martin was a doctor of osteopathic medicine, and years later, he also received a law degree. Martin and Michelle both wanted a big family and started having children right away. Michelle gave birth to four kids in five years and went on to adopt four more children. By all accounts, Michelle was an amazing mother and her kids were her life. Martin meets Michelle, who's a bombshell and a, you know, high school homecoming queen. And I believe she just won some local beauty pageant. And 
sweeps her off her feet. And Michelle was 21 when she met Martin, and they only dated for a few months. I think it's a common thing in the LDS church to get married at a relatively young age. And, you know, they were compatible. And so they married quickly. The happy times were actually not just when they met and got married. If you look at videos of them at Christmas and the kids are opening presents, like they've got all of that. And you would think seeing this couple from the outside, that they were this perfect match. They lived in a gated community and were active members of the church. I think he worked at the church of LDS at some point. Um, so by all accounts, I mean, she's this beautiful homecoming queen. He is this young and up-and-coming doctor who's also getting his law degree. I mean, they literally couldn't sound like a, a more perfect couple. Michelle grew up in Concord, California, which is about an hour east of San Francisco. And uh, her father left when she was around 16. So her family really struggled financially. So, you know, she, she ran towards Martin. Here's this motivated guy who studied to become a doctor, eventually becomes a lawyer, served in the military. I think she, you know, really adored him and saw this big, bright future. And I think he played into that. With Michelle, if we're looking at Michelle, and they get married, and then months later, he's in jail for forgery, which she must have known. I mean, unless he was that great of a con convincing her and told her, I'm going on vacation for a couple months. So that says something about, to me, he must have had some sort of sway on her because that's a red flag. Uh, and also to an earlier point, they eloped, which probably means that, you know, her family already had red flags about this guy. So she was already kind of walking away from her family and her life. And once she committed to it, I think she maybe felt stuck or maybe hoped things would get better or maybe things were better. But she wasn't going to turn around and say, you were right. And also, like, theft is one crime, but forgery and fraud, like, without knowing the specific charges and not being a lawyer myself, like, I think you could kind of explain those away. Like, oh, I, I, had, to, I had to sign this form and I didn't mean to sign it and I had to do it to get it out. You could kind of explain that as something that you would just have to do. and. You know, she not being an expert in the field might have just been naive to it. And as you said, Stephanie, he's a world class liar. And so I imagine he was pretty smooth in explaining his crimes to her. And she, you know, whether she wanted to believe it or she did fully believe it, I mean, she she stuck with him. And, you know, like we said, they're Mormons. And so divorce, not OK, especially after just a few months of being married, I would imagine. Like, why wouldn't she stick with him? He made a mistake. He paid for his mistake. And now things are better. In March of 2007, after nearly 30 years of marriage, Martin turned 50. He suddenly became obsessed with his appearance and started working out, losing weight, and even went to the tanning salon. Understandably, Michelle was suspicious Martin was having an affair and confronted him. He vehemently denied he was cheating. Your spouse suddenly starts hitting up the tanning salon mid, you know, years and years, eight children in, and that's a new thing. That's a tell. That's like the number one tell is when a spouse starts to change their habits. So they go to the gym, they start caring, about, they get a, hair, a different haircut. Like those are the things that like every Cosmopolitan magazine has that as the number one thing when your spouse is cheating on you. And, and so it's whether or not Michelle knew that or noticed that, I, she must have because her kids were aware. So she must have been aware. After continuing to deny cheating, Martin suggested Michelle should get a facelift. She was conflicted, but ultimately agreed as she thought it would help her marriage. 
Michelle had the surgery and was released from the hospital. Alexis, the McNeil's 24-year-old daughter, came home from medical school to help her mother heal. Alexis was quickly concerned when she found out that her mother was unresponsive. Her father, Martin, didn't seem alarmed by this and told Alexis he, quote, probably over-medicated Michelle. It was later revealed that Martin gave the plastic surgeon a list of pain medications that he wanted prescribed to Michelle. At this point, Michelle had bandages over her eyes and was so fearful of Martin's efforts to administer the pain medicine that she had Alexis help her feel each of the pills so she could identify what Martin was trying to give her. On April 11, 2007, Martin picked up his youngest adopted daughter, Ada, from school. When they got home, he told the six-year-old to go and check on her mother. Ada found Michelle unconscious in the master bathtub. Martin called 911. Sir, I need you to come. Sir, I, I can't understand you, okay? Can you calm down just a little bit? Okay, wh- your wife is unconscious? She is unconscious. She's underwater. Okay, did you, did you get her out of the water? I can't. I couldn't the water out. I'm still in progress. She's under the water? She is out of the water now. The woman is giving me an ambulance. Okay, is she breathing at all? She is not. Okay, sir, the ambulance has been paged. They're on their way, okay? Do not hang up. What? Sir? Oh, shit. No, that one didn't. Why would it? calls and then hangs up on 911 and they doing their job track down the number that he called from to call back and he answers the phone and hangs up on them again why would you hang up on 911 you know i think he was trying to delay aid to his wife you know she still had a pulse and i think he knew that obviously being a doctor what a psychopath also to allow your little daughter to go find her dead mother. I mean, that's the most disturbing. Why would he do that? I mean, I'm trying to think of how that lends itself to his story. Also, it makes it seem like it asks, you'd have to ask yourself that same exact question. Why would he do that? No no good man would ever let his daughter find her dead mother. I mean, I also think, again, it was all about Martin. You know, that Martin thought maybe I, it would look less like he was involved with, you know, his six-year-old daughter stumbling upon her body. And, and, and then he sent that six-year-old to the neighbor's house. And I think, you know, those antics, a six-year-old running over to the neighbor's house, 
because he needed help getting Michelle out of the tub. And I mean, we've all seen pictures of her. She was not a large woman. She was pretty petite. Well, yeah, the the neighbor who ended up coming over to help the the husband, he actually testified in court that he he wouldn't have had any trouble lifting her out on her on his own. We know he had been going to the gym and working on his yeah. physique, so he was so, in the best shape of his life. Yeah, it's pretty crazy hearing the nine one one call just to be able to call nine one one and fake the screaming and the, uh, being upset is just next level. I mean, to put yourself in his shoes, what he's thinking and what he's doing is in insane like someone who's not in their right mind i mean it's it's egregious but it turns out martin's entire life had been a lie in order to get into both medical school and law school he falsified records you know this is a world-class liar so you know sometimes a smooth talker can present themselves one way and be completely another and perhaps you know michelle really just wanted to find love. You know, Martin had a law degree despite being a convicted felon. And as of 2015, apparently only three states outright banned convicted felons from ever becoming lawyers. It's Kansas, uh, Mississippi, and Texas. Well, he's, he's clearly into himself. And I think we're dealing with a narcissist again. He wants to have those accolades. He wants everybody to look at him as this big person in, in the uh, community. So who's who's going to look even bigger than a doctor and a lawyer? That is such a good point. What is the actual clinical definition of a psychopath? He certainly checked all the boxes of a psychopath. I mean, someone who was callous, not emotional, morally depraved, had a lot of charm, highly intelligent, extremely manipulative. I mean, he was certainly all those things. And to an earlier point, he had a grandiose sense of self-worth. I think, though, like, Looking at the story afterwards, it's easy to say that he seems like a psychopath now that we know what we know. But I think when you're in Michelle's position and you're lying in bed next to this guy every night, it's probably much more difficult to notice these things and have like, she's not you know writing them on a list, all these things that he's done that are wrong. And when you're in love with someone and you have a family with them, I think it's probably easy to kind of move past something and forget that he did that. In Michelle's defense, too, he was he was keeping all of that stuff like he was smart enough, um, like he got caught when he was younger. But it sounds like he was a real master at living a double life. And she's busy raising his kids. There's four kids plus another four kids. The the amount of bandwidth she'd have left to be like, hmm, what are you doing? Uh, this, I don't. Did you graduate high school to get into that college to get law degree? I don't do you, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what she knew necessarily. She probably wasn't thinking that. She was like, this is my husband. He's sleeping next to me. We're, we're having these children. He's bringing home a paycheck. And, you know, from all accounts, he loves me. Um, and I think it was much, it was, again, it was a, a midlife crisis. I think that he just kind of went hog wild and got himself caught at that point. The other thing that came up, and again, I mean, when you think about it, she's not like looking at his transcripts, but in, I think, 1990, he also pleaded no contest to Medicaid fraud, and he was banned from Medicaid billing for 12 years. I mean, again, that's that's something that you could possibly hide from your spouse. Um, you know, it's not like Michelle's seeing him, you know, for as medical purposes, and writing it off to her insurance. So, you know, I mean, all of this stuff, he was charming enough, you know, and certainly was successful enough in the way they were living their lives 
that you wouldn't think, you know, one of your neighbor, your doctor, your church member would be doing that. You know, it's not like she's looking at Martin's transcript. You're not fact-checking someone who you trust. By the way, for him, what a great distraction. So many children, aside from the fact that she was physically pregnant for so many years in a row, and if not, you know, nursing an infant, then, oh, that's getting, you know, maybe she has more time. So let's add some more children to the mix. You know, it's a really perfect cover. What a hideous thought. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. Thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. At this point, we know she's afraid enough of him that she's having, you know, doing this crazy thing with the eyes and counting the pills, which is a horrible visual. Speaking of the pills, I mean, he's not her doctor. And yes, he has a medical degree, but he's not a plastic surgeon. So what is he doing giving a a plastic surgeon a list of medications that his wife needs post-surgery? Like, that's crazy, right? I mean, that's crazy. And on top of that, I mean, you're a physician, you know, you would know that this drug combination is not safe. It's a, it's a toxic 
combination that will suppress your breathing. And eventually it'll end up in some cardiac issue. So, you know, the fact that the surgeon let Martin suggest all the medications, uh, you know, they're not meant to be mixed. It's crazy. Did anyone look into the doctor? Did we know? Is he? Yes. And, and to his point of view was, you know, he wouldn't have done it if Michelle's husband, if Martin wasn't a doctor. And again, this is a community, you know, who that knew Dr. Martin McNeil. You know, he was an osteopathic doctor and I think he was trusted and, and he was going to administer the medication and Michelle correctly. He was going to take care of her after the surgery. So, I mean, even the, the doctor that performed the surgery testified that these medications were not meant to be mixed. It speaks to how manipulative he was to be able to convince another doctor to do that, like to be in that room and tell, give him a list of scripts, like write his script pad or whatever. That's crazy. But not only that, um, she listed Martin as her primary care physician on her paperwork. He testified to that. So that was part of what led the doctor, I think. That is so bizarre. That is crazy. That has to be, a, I mean, that's a serious conflict of interest. If you were actually trying to help someone, you wouldn't like be your wife's doctor. But a lethal combination of pills is also different, you know, to the original point that Beth was making. That was a actual cocktail of death. Obviously, poor Michelle is cognizant of this enough that she's having her eldest daughter look at the pills. I mean, that's nuts. I mean, to be clear, Ambien, Valium, Percocet, and Phenergen, which I think is also, I think it's in, in cold medicine. It's like a cough suppressant. All the things that when taken together, God forbid, is inevitably lethal. I think it speaks to the crazy in love of it all, like how in love she must have been, how afraid she was to leave him, that she's afraid of him enough that she would do all these crazy things, but then also would bring her kids into it to try to protect her from him murdering her, which she felt was imminent. And also just the clear fact that she's being forced to have facial surgery to hopefully keep her cheating husband close to home and knowing full well she's about to go under. If you're already fearing for your life, which you must be if you're having your eldest daughter go through the pills and make sure that you're not being drugged by your father. It's kind of astounding, frankly. Yeah, these poor kids that they were put in the middle of this situation that they felt they had to protect their mom. And then, you know, in looking at promise, how do you say it? It's phenergen, which is definitely something that's in cold medicine. It's used to prevent and treat nausea and to stop vomiting uh, when people, before and after surgery. So that makes, you know, it makes me wonder... Do you think he was giving her that to keep the other drugs in her system? Because if you take too many pills, you're going to be throwing up. Michelle did actually at some point throw up and, and Martin gave her more medicine. Stop. I believe that was something that happened before Alexis found her mother unconscious. You know, so Martin thought it was okay to give her more medicine because she had vomited. Wow. You know, in listening to that 911 tape, you know, I think it, he sounds like an angry individual. I mean, the 911 dispatcher said she's never spoken to someone that aggressive and angry and condescending. I mean, she was trying to help him revive his wife. It was amazing to me in this moment that the 911 operator could see Martin McNeil's, the, this postured man who is an osteopath, that she just saw an aggressive, angry, and condescending man who was not being helpful in this situation. On April 11th, 2007, Michelle died. The police and the autopsy reports concluded that Michelle's death was accidental and due to cardiovascular disease. But Michelle and Martin's daughter, Alexis, was suspicious of her dad. She wanted to check her mom's remaining medication to see how many pills she took. 
Martin said the pill bottles may be in the garage. He said he'd move them there because it made him sad to look at them. It was later revealed that Martin ordered his son Damien and Damien's girlfriend to flush Michelle's medication down the toilet. Martin rushed to have Michelle's funeral and just days later hired a live-in nanny named Julian. Alexis confided in her sister Rachel that Michelle had Alexis look into their dad's cell phone records. These records revealed to them that Martin had been calling one number repeatedly day and night. It had been going on for quite a long time. Alexis did an online search and the number belonged to Gypsy Jillian Willis, a woman Michelle assumed Martin was having an affair with. Rachel and Alexis confronted their father Martin about his relationship with Gypsy. He was enraged and kicked his daughters out of the house for not accepting the woman. You know, in different religions, you have a funeral, like a certain amount of time, maybe before you bury someone. But this, this seemed like a rush job that he put together. He wanted her buried, dead, and gone. I mean, Martin also banned Michelle's side of the family from attending her funeral. You know, he he had threatened to have them arrested if they came. And, and they kind of, he kind of already had driven a wedge in between this family, which is how they ended up living in Utah. And I think he just wanted... You know, he wanted this done and gone, and he wanted to move on. The daughters, though, were there, and they, at this point, I think were pretty suspicious, right? They obviously, if they're counting the pills and all that, they did not, they're not a fan of their dads at this point. Yeah, not only that, Gypsy showed up at the funeral. She did. Martin acted like he didn't know who she was, and the daughters knew who she was once she introduced herself. These kids just lost their mother. You know, they obviously knew things about their father, but this is the straw that broke the camel's back. It's almost like, you know, you're not just losing your mom, you're losing you're losing two parents. This man you've known your whole life, it's a little worse than just losing him. You you don't know the monster that lives in your house, right? Pill bottles is in the garage. I mean, it made him quote unquote sad. Like that to me seems like he's just trying to hide evidence. You know, Alexis wanted to see what was remaining of those pills for a reason. We already knew that he had accidentally given her too much of the pain medication, even to the point where she threw up. Uh, you know, he thought it's, it's not working, so I'm going to give her more. And and Michelle had concerns. I mean, she wanted to know the shape of each pill, so he couldn't give her a lethal dose. And Alexis, following through to see how many pills were left, to see how many she had taken in such a short amount of time. Well, yeah, and then to add insult to injury, he moves this woman who, they, you know, that Alexis knew from the phone records into the house nine days later under the auspices, this uh, gypsy, under the auspices that she's the nanny to help take care of the younger daughters. And I know that Rachel, um, the other sister, testified that she just saw her dad doing all the housework. This woman wasn't doing any of it. She was just sleeping in his room and hanging out on the couch. And she would have expected her to take care of the kids and at least cook a meal or two. And she wasn't doing it. So this woman, Gypsy Willis, was not an expert nanny, as far as I could find, but she was kind of an expert con artist. Um, it turns out that she had owed $60,000 to the IRS, and that's a substantial amount of money. And so what her and Martin decided to do together was to avoid paying the debt. Martin helped facilitate that they would steal one of their one of his daughter's social security numbers so that Gypsy could essentially open bank accounts in her name and start fresh. The mistress was basically stealing her boyfriend's daughter's identity with the boyfriend's help. In 2009, two years after Michelle's death, the feds 
finally charged Martin with identity theft, and he was sentenced to four years in prison for that. Gypsy was indicted on similar charges and was sentenced to 21 months in prison. The, the worst part of that, like I said earlier, is, is this poor daughter was stuck, Giselle was stuck back in the Ukraine, uh, living in a tiny little apartment with uh, barely any running water, apparently, um, kind of, and was there for months until the, they were arrested and all of this was figured out. And, and Alexis and uh, I believe Michelle's sister could go over to the Ukraine to pick her up and bring her back to the U.S. to her home. I mean, that's that's some real expert level douchebaggery by by Martin. You know, Martin had money. Martin was a doctor. And, and it later came out that, he, you know, he was still receiving military benefits, even though he was discharged. Did Martin not have like 60,000 to clear this up for Gypsy? Or was it just another, you know, another grift? Yeah, I was going to say, I bet you anything, he's addicted to that kind of stuff, that rush that he would get to try and pull one over, whether it's the government or his wife or um, his family back in the day or whoever he wrote that bounce check to that got him arrested originally. This was a rush for him. It seems like everything he's doing is a little bit of a rush, like stealing the daughter's identity, moving this mistress into his house nine days after his wife's death under the guise that she's a nanny. Like, he didn't have to lie. His daughters hated him at that point. They thought he's a killer. Why are you even pretending she's the nanny, if not just because he likes a con? Mm -hmm. He likes to get away with things. Which, again, goes back to psychopath. Martin proposed to Gypsy, and he presented her with a four-and-a-half-carat diamond ring shortly after Michelle passed away. And the one thing I don't know if we hit, you know, with the funeral is Gypsy had actually texted Martin, like, half-naked pictures of herself while he was at Michelle's funeral, which to me is just so disgusting. Some of these things just seem like he's such a—he's a psychopath, and he's murdered his wife, and he has this big plan, but some of these things seem so sloppy, like the medication— the texting, like all those things are, he should know that they're going to look through the timestamps and if they're ever investigating him, they're going to figure it out. Did he just think he was never going to even be looked at? He must have. I think he thought he was too smart to get caught. He's gotten a medical degree with, with false information. He's gotten a, a law degree with false information. He's had how many years of marriage without getting caught before now? Uh, I think he was living high on his himself. And he was, which is exactly where investigators like criminals like him because then they start making mistakes because they don't they don't think they're going to get caught. You know, Martin didn't get tried for Michelle's murder until six years later. And, you know, I, I think honestly, they put effort into catching him on something to hold on to him while they investigated, you know, Michelle's death further, because otherwise Martin would have probably married Gypsy and, you know, moved on to another con or another grift. Michelle's adult children vocally appealed to the media and fought for an official review of Michelle's toxicology report. The Utah County Attorney's Office finally agreed to investigate Michelle's death. The chief medical examiner found that the medications in Michelle's body were not at a toxic level, but that the combination of all the medicine, including Ambien, Valium, Phenergen, and Percocet, quote, could have led to sedation and heart arrhythmia resulting in cardiac death. On October 6, 2010, three years after Michelle's death, her manner of death was changed to undetermined. 
the cause listed as combined effects of heart disease and drug toxicity. In July of 2012, Martin McNeil was released from prison after serving two years for identity theft charges. Utah County officials announced that Martin was a suspect in the murder of his wife. Two months later, Martin McNeil was arrested and held on $1 million bond. He was facing murder charges and the death of his wife. So this is kind of when it all begins to unravel for him, right? They, the Utah County Attorney's Office investigators did a deep dive into his past and discovered that literally everything he's accomplished in his life is built on lies. He joined the military at 17, but he was, uh, he was kicked out of the military very quickly after joining, even though he was continuing to collect benefits for years. He used phony transcripts to get into medical school and law school. So all of these things combined really paint a picture of just what we've been saying, that this guy is a con artist from day one. Yeah, I mean, he didn't just continue to get benefits. He collected benefits for 30 years. And when you look at it, he was kicked out of the military for being schizophrenic. You know, he initially had forgery charges and he saw a piece on 60 Minutes and thought he could be a better forger. And let's not forget the Medicaid billing scheme that he pled no contest to. So I think Alexis and Rachel really were trying to get this case wide open. And once the Utah County Attorney's Office got involved, it was just pulling a string on a ball of yarn. Well, can you imagine Alexis and Rachel and all the rest of the kids, you know, the adult kids learning that when their dad was about their age, 23, that's when he falsified transcripts to get into medical school to become a doctor. So he's been a phony doctor since just about when they were born. But I mean, that's a long time to have been doing fraud, you know, and I can only imagine that Michelle didn't know about that. She probably celebrated, they probably went out to dinner and celebrated him getting into medical school. All a house of lies. Yeah. Imagine being him too. You know, it's all about to start crumbling down at some point. And here we are, we're at that point. I also believe that the investigation uncovered that Martin McNeil abused patients and a lot of them never reported it because of his position in the community. They didn't think they were going to be believed. And I think they were also afraid of him and the repercussions and and possible retaliation. I can totally see that there's a community that is letting this man continue despite all of the allegations and there and he's the one being believed, not necessarily the patients. But not only that, he had a girlfriend apparently um, they found out before Gypsy, she was, um, I think he met her through one of the, uh, medical centers that he worked at. And she told, told them that he had told her that, um, he had killed, tried to kill his, uh, mom and that he had also killed his brother, Rufus Roy McNeil and told her that there's a way to do it. Um, and there's a way to do it where it doesn't look like it was homicide and you get away with murder. And it happened to be the same way Michelle was found. And the investigators, when they looked into that, they found out that, yes, indeed, his brother had been found in dead in a bathtub in New Jersey. That's startling to me. Yeah, I mean, he has an MO, is what that says. That's a lifetime of lies. Yeah, but there's decades between that MO for investigators to realize that. It's the talented Mr. Ripley. You present yourself one way, and he presented himself really lovely. It's scary. Let's stop here for another quick break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought 
in that moment, oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I mean, there's always that one person who sees through the veneer. And Michelle's family seemed to have some sort of idea that the kind of person Martin was. I mean, Michelle's mother did not like him when she met him. And then, of course, there was the warning from the bishop of the church. So Martin made sure that Michelle's family couldn't attend the funeral because they could see through and and see actually who Martin really was. Did he tell Michelle, the judge, is that why he said he didn't like them? Is that what he told Michelle, that he felt judged by them? No, actually, that came out at the trial. He told that to Gypsy. See, that's interesting, though, because I don't even buy that, because that makes him the victim in that situation, that it's like her family are the judgy jerks, and he's the poor guy who they're looking down upon, when it's like, really, he's the one isolating his wife from them and tearing her away. Yeah, he's telling a story to Gypsy to make Gypsy feel sorry for him, I bet. Mm -hmm. 
and to engender her loyalty, which is still there. I, I believe I've seen a, a, a an interview clip with her where she she's like, no, he didn't do this. I mean, how does it look right to anybody that, first of all, there's evidence that Gypsy had been popping up before Michelle died? I remembered it was mentioned in a video that one of the kids' birthday parties that Gypsy's car was parked across the street and captured in the birthday video. And then in anyone's right mind, whether she was involved or not, how could Gypsy possibly think it's right to move in with the man that you were having an affair with days after his wife passed away? I mean, either she was madly in love with him and wanted this life, or, I mean, you know, she she already came to this relationship with $60,000 worth of debt. And that debt was, you know, from not paying taxes. It was an IRS debt. So she already had something about her that wasn't on the up and up. What is that about her peering around the corner? At one of Martin and Michelle's kids' birthday parties, there was a video that showed them celebrating this party out in the front lawn and in the background, there was a car that was Gypsy Willis's car. It was her roommate's car, and she was watching from afar. I mean, that's completely mentally ill. Stalker. Yes. She has a whole other narrative that she's been fed by this clown, you know, who really is probably snowing her. I think she's been snowed by him, but I also think she's got questionable moral compass herself. Um, she knew she was in a relationship with a married man. And um, I've seen her interview before. No guilt in that respect. No remorse for for being the other woman. The same woman who is sending him half-naked pictures of herself at the funeral. Of his wife. Is that true? Yes. Yes. And showing up to the funeral. Why would you do that? I mean, Gypsy was obviously crazy. She wanted, in some capacity, Michelle McNeil's life. And here's Martin kind of delivering it in the second act here. You know, he proposes with this four and a half carat diamond ring. And, you know, Michelle McNeil's dead and, and Gypsy Wills moves in and is now sleeping with Martin McNeil, living Michelle McNeil's life. And Martin's taking her side over everything. He's killing, he's kicking out his adult children for her. He's doing all kinds, like he's getting himself in identity theft trouble with her. Like, I think there was some manipulation going on on her end too, to Martin. I think that was just a very volatile uh, relationship and situation. On October 17th, 2013, six years after Michelle's death, Martin McNeil finally went to trial for her murder. The plastic surgeon who performed Michelle's facelift testified he would not have prescribed the medication requested by Martin McNeil had Martin not been a doctor. The surgeon also stated that when he prescribed these medications, they were never meant to be taken at the same time. All of them were central nervous system depressants. Most of the McNeil daughters took the stand and testified about their fractured relationship with their father. They also talked about his life of lies and how they believed that he had killed their mother. Alexis's testimony was particularly compelling. Here she is on the stand. It's been a few minutes. Yeah. Since we talked about what happened. Yeah. So you asked her what happened. What is the what happened? What happened because she was very sedated and overmedicated when I went in that morning. And she said, Lexi, I don't, I don't know why, but your dad kept giving me medication. He kept giving me things, telling me to swallow. And she said, I even started to throw up. But then he started giving me more medication and kept giving me medication, talked about how she had to drink, even like the, like the lower tab, the elixir that my dad had Dr. Thompson prescribed. But um, 
she said that he kept giving her medication. Okay. Um, did she say anything to you about, uh, well, let's describe her demeanor as best you can. She still has bandages on mm -hmm. her eyes and face. Yeah. But, uh. She was upset. She was upset. How could you tell she was upset? Um, because I knew my mom. Um, I could hear it in her voice. Um. Um. Did she make any specific requests as far as how the medications would be administered to her? She said, she said that she didn't want my dad to give her any more medicine and that um, she actually had me take out every single pill from the pill bottles and she wanted to feel what the pills fe felt like in her, in her fingers um, so that if my dad tried to give her anything, she'd know what he was giving her. But she had me take out every single pill and she felt it in her fingers and I told her, this is this medicine, this is this medicine. Because at that time she couldn't see. Okay. Did that persist for a couple of days until the bandages were off? As far as her yeah, heart feel? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But she said she didn't want my dad to give her any more medication. She wanted me to be in charge. So the three-week trial included testimony from not only Martin and Michelle's daughters, like we just heard, but also former mistresses and even one of Martin's cellmates who claimed that he admitted to killing his wife. So really people just came out of the woodwork piling on that, that this guy did it. It was a three-week trial. So there was testimony from Martin and Michelle's kids, former mistresses, colleagues, Michelle's friends. And, you know, one of Michelle's friends testified that after Michelle passed away, she wanted to help Martin, you know, and help take care of the kids. And he said he had already hired a nanny. And we all know that that nanny turned out to be Martin's mistress, Gypsy Willis. I also just think something to note, the six year between uh, Michelle's death and the trial starting seems like a long time. But having done a lot of research about other crimes, it's actually pretty common for it to take that long. The wheels of justice just move slowly and people really want to, the prosecution really wants to make sure they have an ironclad case. So that lag time is not uncommon. You got to hand it to Alexis and Rachel for yelling as loud as they did. And Michelle's siblings, you know, getting officials to pay attention to the case and getting someone back in there to review that report and change the cause of death, which allowed them to start investigating this as a crime. Great point. It's that they needed to get it declared as um, undetermined or homicide. It was declared undetermined, which is not necessarily indication of a crime happening. It just allows investigators to investigate it to see if a crime has happened, just to clarify. At that point, um, the coroner determined what he thought was her cause of death. And being told that she had been found in the bathtub, and there was inaccuracy. So Ada, actually the youngest daughter that Martin so callously sent up to go find her mom, didn't testify in court. They deposed her when she was a, a young kid. She described and drew the position that Michelle was in and that there was some, uh, the water was a little red, like there's some blood, blood there, which contradicts the story, the position Martin told, I believe it came out in court. They went up even as far as, as writing the, the governor, right? It was the attorney general. And I don't know, like a, they went all kinds of places, Alexis and Rachel. You know, they reached out to the media to keep the story alive. They reached out to government officials. Anyone who would have any type of power to reopen this and at least get the autopsy report reviewed. 
And I think that was, I mean, the serious factor, because otherwise, if they hadn't done anything, no one would have thought otherwise. Martin would have never been arrested and charged. Well, the case wouldn't have been able to be opened again, and he would have gotten away with it. Shortly after the trial, Alexis was awarded custody of her little sisters. Martin was found guilty of first-degree felony murder and second-degree felony obstructing justice. One month after landing in the Utah County Jail, he tried to kill himself by cutting his femoral artery with a blade. As a result, he was placed on suicide watch until he was sentenced to prison in September 2014. On April 9th, 2017, just two days before the 10th anniversary of Michelle's murder, Martin McNeil was found unresponsive in the prison yard. He had jerry-rigged a plastic bag with a gas hose attached to it, killing himself. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Beth Greenwald, Chris Graves, Lisa DiGiovine, Jeff Shane, Tim Hamilton, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Additional editing by Davy Cooper Wasser. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.